Atamaria, welcome to First Up. It is Ra Pare, that's Thursday, the 8th of December. Call Nathan Rararia Coming up, summer travel plans hit some turbulence due to a bad batch of aviation fuel. We'll see how it might affect one of our smaller carriers, Air Chathams. I asked the Deputy PM, Grant Robertson, whether keeping Marsden Point could have actually helped with all of that. Good news, the Kiwis are back in Whakatane. And we take a trip to find out why a proposed crossing between two Coromandel towns is such a big deal. It enables the communities to walk across without having to travel in cars. And also we quite often have floods. People quite often get caught up over there. So for the children and for the community, it's one of the best things ever. Kia ora everybody, we have a packed show for you this morning here at First Up. We begin in China, where people have been taken by surprise by the government dropping its zero COVID strategy. Testing rules have been relaxed and hospitals are preparing for an upsurge in cases. The BBC China's correspondent Stephen McDonnell has more. Previously, catching COVID-19 here meant being sent to centralised quarantine facilities, which varied wildly in quality. Not anymore. Now, if you contract the coronavirus, you can choose to isolate at home. Life is returning to Beijing's streets. Though infections haven't come down, more easing measures have been announced. PCR tests are no longer required to enter buildings apart from hospitals and schools. COVID restrictions on inter-province travel have been removed. I've retired and I want to travel again. After easing up, I can go on a trip somewhere. All these venues are open. We can now go in, like parks and shopping centres. I'm still afraid. I go to places with not many people and protect myself, wearing a mask and washing my hands. Anti-zero Covid protests had been building all year. And after calls were made for the country's leader, Xi Jinping, to resign, changes came quickly. The speed with which China is now dismantling its zero COVID system has taken most people by surprise. The government says it's because the virus itself has changed, not that it's in response to protests in the streets. Well, those who are demonstrating won't care how the government spins it as long as they get the changes. But it will mean more people catching the coronavirus and hospitals like this are going to find it difficult to deal with the big influx of patients. So officials say they're now expanding the capacity of specialist units. Pharmacies have become very busy with people rushing to buy medicine in anticipation of an increase in infections. But the mood here is much more buoyant. Finally, there's light at the end of the zero COVID tunnel. Stephen McDonnell reporting from Beijing. It is seven past five here at First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. And we go to the US now, where Democrats candidate Raphael Warnock fended off Republican challenger Herschel Walker in the Georgia runoff election. With the latest, I'm joined by Kate Fisher. Kia ora, Kate. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How close did it end up in the end? It was very close. There was, uh, the end was basically 51% for Warnock, 49% of the vote for Herschel Walker, which is interesting because that is now the makeup of the US Senate as well. 51 Democrats and 49 Republicans. But it was extremely close. But Warnock did win. That means the Democrats have won the last 
three uh, Senate elections uh, in the state, which is a real kind of massive change, given the fact that traditionally Georgia has always been uh, a Republican safe seat for the Senate, essentially. But now Raphael Warnock has turned that around. This is the, He's the first black man to hold a Senate seat for Georgia in history. It's incredible. So, so tell us this. So, we've got fifty-one Democrats. You said forty-nine uh, on the other side of the house. They're the Republicans. What does that mm-hmm. mean for the Democrats in the Senate? Like, what can they do with that? Well, it is significant. Even though they already have control of the Senate from the results back in November, this extra seat means that it's going to be much easier for them to move legislation. They no longer need a unanimous uh, party, uh, all Democrats voting for them. They can afford to lose uh, the votes of senators like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who are kind of really centrist and uh, sometimes uh, much more towards the right. Uh, So more progressive Democrat policies will be able to pass through the House, sorry, through the Senate much more easily. They won't need to rely on Kamala Harris, the vice president, for that tie-breaking vote. That means that she'll be more free to leave Washington because she won't have to hang around just in case she's needed uh, in the Senate. It also means that they will have the majority on all Senate committees, which means they can get much more of what they want uh, discussed and passed through those Senate committees. And it also means that they can approve uh, President Biden's picks for judges, which uh, which is he's trying to appoint much many more women and black judges uh, to the courts in the US. So that all helped the Democrats. Herschel Walker was one of the Trump-backed candidates. I mean, he, he's a, a sports hero in Georgia, so he had a, a huge profile. He had the backing of Donald Trump. He he didn't get there. What does that failure mean um, for Donald Trump and his this? run for presidency possibly yeah it's a really bad uh signal for donald trump just a couple of weeks after he announced his presidential run for 2024 and there we have this candidate that was picked by him and endorsed by him failing to win in a state which has traditionally always voted republican and also in a year where there was record inflation there were really low approval ratings for the presidents in the white house this should have been an easy win for republicans and then they clearly chose the wrong candidate to run and the person that chose that candidate and endorsed that candidate was Donald Trump. So it's going to mean that the GOP really have to look at uh, the influence of Donald Trump in the party and it's going to does not do him any favours ahead of 2024. But this is Donald Trump we're talking about and predictions are pointless. Well, I mean, I mean, it does sound like he's in quite a bit of legal trouble and I'm sure that story is going to blow up more as we, we go on with investigations. But have we has he made a statement at all about this or do you think he's more worried about that court case? Yeah, no, he hasn't. He hasn't spoken about this publicly. And you're right. This is a bad week for Donald Trump. Yesterday, his uh, organization, the Trump Organization, was found guilty of tax fraud in New York. And then his handpicked candidate for Senate in Georgia lost the runoff election. And he hasn't spoken about this publicly. I was just looking through my emails before we came on air. And the only message I've got from the Trump, from Donald Trump, he emails a lot, uh, was offering to sell me his uh, Christmas card for this season. But as I said, never count him out. Um, At the moment, this is a bad week for him, but it's, you know, next year is another year in politics and and who knows? (laughs) It's always exciting. Kate, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, with news out of the United States, that's Kate Fisher.
It's 12 past five and you are listening to First Up here at RNZ National with me, Nathan Radade. Um It's very interesting, isn't it? Here, you can buy my Christmas card. <laughs> Goodness me. Uh, text us on 2101 about anything on the programme this morning or thoughts that you have uh, on things. Just, we got an email around the office the other day that someone at work lost their water bottle and it's apparently it's got a, it's got a GPS on it. And I thought to myself, is a GPS on a water bottle, is that slightly over the top? 2101, let me know what you think. I mean, just, yeah, like, I don't know. Or, or is everyone doing this now? I don't know. I, you know I'm 50 now, I'm old, let me know. Uh, to Europe now, we're going to go to Sweden, where our correspondent, uh, Dr. Anita Purcell Sherland, uh, joins us. Kia ora, Doctor. It's all go there. Can you tell us about this amazing sounding coup? It sounds like a horrible film. German authorities have moved against far-right coup plotters. What is the latest there? Absolutely. You probably think it is a movie, but it's not, really. The um, the raids took place across 11 German states in the early hours of this morning, or Wednesday morning, and the suspects are a, a part of a wider right-wing movement called the Reichsburger scene, or Imperial Citizens Movement. The Reichsburger scene rejects the modern-day government, and it wants to install a new state modelled on the Germany of 1871, or the Second Reich. Now, one of the arrested is a 71-year-old referred to as a prince called Heinrich the 13th, who is central to the coup plot, which has been in the planning since November last year. It's it's incredible to to read about, you know, that they're out hunting military units, uh, the police trying to find. It's it's quite incredible. So we'll uh, we'll hear more about that later in the program. Let's go to Spain. Um, two trains have collided there. What, what's happened with that? Well, the train crash happened in Catalonia and uh, it happened at around 10 to 8 this morning or Wednesday morning at a station on the outskirts of Barcelona. Now, writing on Twitter, emergency services said that 150 people were in a mild condition and five others had been left in a less serious condition. So according to local media, the trains were heading in the same direction and collided while one was parked at the station. And and, and also... Yeah, and and that sounds horrible with the amount of uh, injuries and stuff that would be there. Mm, absolutely, 150. Now, you know, they, they say mild condition is quotation brackets on Twitter. So, or what the conditions are, but I mean, still, um, people injured is horrific. Right. Um, staying in Spain, I see police have arrested 30 people for smuggling cannabis disguised as aid for the Ukraine. <laughs> that's that's horrible. Tell us about this. Well, uh, which thing about... Uh, uh, Ukrainians, Spaniards, Germans and Moroccans, they were among those you know, arrested in the Andalusia region. Um, police said the drugs came from across the southern region in Spain and were packaged in cardboard boxes. Now what happened was the, tra- the drugs travelled through several countries in so-called solidarity convoys so that they could pass under the radar of police and border controls. Now police became suspicious after identifying a group of Ukrainians on the Costa de Sol collecting cannabis and storing it in a flat in a town called Mias near Malaga. And then they lost in penalties to Morocco, so it hasn't been a good week at all for Spain. Uh, let's uh, quickly move to Greece. There's some violent protests have occurred. What what were the reason for the protests? Well, the protests 
is happening in Greece's second city of Thessaloniki, in which protesters threw petrol bombs at police. The reason for the protest is the police shooting of a 16-year-old Roma male who's in critical condition. The protests in Thessaloniki happened after CCTV video of the police shooting uh, was released on Tuesday. In the video, the teenager is seen filling up his vehicle with 20 euros uh, worth of petrol and then leaving without paying. Uh, police said officers on motorcycles pursued the 16-year-old who then turned this vehicle towards them to ram into them. One of the officers fired a warning shot and then a second shot towards um, the young man's car, hitting him in the head. Oh boy. And uh, finally, in the Netherlands, the royal family is being probed over its role in the country's colonial past. Yeah, King Willem Alexander commissioned the investigation and it will take three years and span the period from the late 16th century until the post-colonial period. Later this month, the Dutch government is set to apologise for its major role in global slavery from the 17th century until its abolishment in the late uh, 19th century. The Dutch government also plans to allocate 200 million euros to a fund to raise awareness of the Netherlands' colonial role in slavery and 27 million euros to open a slavery museum. Earlier this year, the Dutch Central Bank apologised for its role in the slave trade and said it would fund projects aimed at raising awareness of slavery. Dr Sherland, thank you very much for your time. This year's uh, Dr Anita Purcell Sherland in Sweden. The time is 18 past five and I'm Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, this has been quite delightful I think, a very special visitor has left footprints in Whakatane. What could that be? We'll find out from our local democracy reporting program's Diane McCarthy very soon. And we ask the Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson and also the boss of a marvellous Air Chathams uh, whether 25 million litres of dud fuel could throw a spanner in the works for your holiday plans. Uh, it is Thursday, so it's time now to head to the regions with our local democracy reporting programme. I'm very excited this morning to be able to welcome onto the programme Diane McCarthy from Whakatane. Kia ora, Diane. How are you? Got a Nathan. Thank you. Tell me, tell me about this. I love this. Fakatani's got some very special footprints. Tell, tell the audience <laughs> more about these. They're delightful. Yeah. They, um, well, we we're the Kiwi capital of the world, of course. Um, you know, our our uh, Kiwi Trust has been working for the last couple of decades to raise our population of. Kiwi living just within the town um, and the the district around um, from eight Kiwi that were originally found to 300 uh, and upwards. And um, yeah, but recently we have had um, been blessed by um, our own little walk of fame from one of our um, resident Kiwi, um, Few Few. Uh, his, he's an adult male and he lives very close to a road um, that goes up to the Kohir Point lookout and that road has recently been sealed by uh, by our district council Yes and on one of our um, wonderful Kiwi volunteers, Sue Lawrence um She's she goes around monitoring the Kiwi along that road um, frequently, and she was wandering along that footpath with her um, monitor the other day, and she noticed that Fufu had left his footprints in the fresh concrete. 
um, <laughs> that the council had just laid up up on that road. And um, yeah, it, it's it's become like we, we're calling it our, our walk of fame. <laughs> I love that, Diane. That's like that reminds me of um, that was always one of the great pieces of my childhood. I remember riding home from intermediate, and there'd always be the bits of new driveway that was done that would either have a bike tire track in it or some dog yep. footprints, right? Either of those two. <laughs> but you've gone and got some Kiwi footprints there. That's great. So, um, by uh, it's it's interesting too. I love that it, that everyone knows this this male uh, Kiwi's name and they know that's yep. his. Family. Oh, well, that's few few over there. It's, that's yeah. It's not the first time he's been in the news. <laughs> he um, he actually held up the entire roadworks um, for quite some time because he had was um, because as, as you know the kiwi male is the one that incubates the eggs and he had been inc- created this nest and was incubating some eggs right beside the road where the um, the earthworks were happening to widen the road and the entire. Roadworks operation had to um, stop while while the conservation department and the Kiwi Trust got the experts in to very carefully uh, remove those eggs and put them somewhere a bit safer. That's beautiful, Diane. Just very quickly, can you hear the Kiwis at night? Yes, you can. Oh. Um, yeah, we actually have our um, Kiwi. The Kiwi Trust runs special tours. Yes. Where you go into the forest in the early evening, and they and you can hear. We sit very quietly, and you can hear the the kiwi calling. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, Diane, yeah. let's hope that anyone that is travelling uh, around uh, the Bay of Plenty there for the holidays, if there is a chance to do so, I think what a fantastic thing to do uh, yeah. with Diane McCarthy there from uh, Fakatani. Go and have a look and see if, if you can hear uh, Fiu Fiu and his friends. But I do love that, that the little Kiwi footprints there um, in, the, in the little, little bit of cement. Let's just hope someone doesn't show up with a concrete cutter and try and steal them as a fossil. There we go. <laughs> Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Uh, This is the day of our life we call the 8th of December. Sammy Davis Jr. and Jim Morrison were both 8th of December babies. Which made me think last night, I pondered my Doors songs rankings. Number three, Hello I Love You. Number two, Peace Frog. And number one is Soul Kitchen. Anyway, open to debate. Uh, happy birthday to the uh, following people. Nicki Minaj, the singer, she turns 40 years old today. Sinead O'Connor turns 56. Terry Hatcher is 58 years old today. And Kim Bassinger is 69. Uh, on this day in 1857, New York businessman Joseph Gaiety begins marketing Gaiety's medical paper. You know it as toilet paper. Uh, it was made out of pure manila hemp paper, contained aloe as a lubricant and was marked as an anti-hemorrhoid med- medical product. It remained in use until 1935 when splinter-free toilet paper was introduced. Yeah. 1857 toilet paper comes along, 1935 they figure out how to get the splinters out. I'm going to guess toilet paper wasn't that popular up until 1935, that's my guess. On this day in 1932, it was the first issue of the New Zealand Women's Weekly. It was distributed, of course, during the Depression there with a whole lot of tips. Just one writer for all the stories. And on this day in 1967, Otis Redding finished recording his hit song Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. He dies 
two days later in a plane crash and then the song was released after his death it became the first posthumously released song to reach number one on the US charts and those are happenings on this day the 8th of December Joining us now from the business team, it's Anand Zaki. Kia ora, how are you? Morena, very well, thank you. I want to talk about hair loss clinics. These are, are interesting <laughs> near, near places there. <laughs> yeah, that's why. Okay, so hair loss clinic fined for not backing up claims. What happened? Did the hair grow out of the different part of the body? What happened? <laughs> I was going to say, there goes my hope uh, for one day. Uh, um, so, like Ashley and Martin, uh, they're a prominent uh, hair loss treatment provider. I see their ads all the time. Yeah. Uh, uh, or oh, is that because I'm getting targeted? I don't know. I don't well, know. We I won't go there. It's because you watch cricket, don't you? Yeah, I watch there cricket. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> there was a, maybe, do they think all cricket fans are at the receding time? Sorry. Anyway, I'm talking. Go carry on. So, uh, look, Ashley and Martin have been fined $367,000 uh, at the Auckland District Court for not being able to back up its claim of 98% success rate for its hair loss treatment. Uh, so the claim's been, um, or it was rather, widely advertised between November 2016 and May 2021. And they just repeatedly claimed that uh, this treatment, uh, which costs... Uh, up to $5,000 uh, had a 98% success rate. Uh, but the Commerce Commission said Ashley and Martin didn't have a reasonable basis for its claims. Uh, the company uh, provided the commission with a customer satisfaction survey of 109 customers from 2007 and a clinical uh, and clinical trial results of 10 customers from 1999. Uh, and the mm. Commerce Commission said uh, combining uh, those two results uh, just doesn't make the cut to uh, scientifically support the claim. Wow. Okay. So, all right, we'll, we'll be careful with that one then. And, um, oh, here's a new one, supply chain challenges. Tell us about, <laughs> tell us about those. Are they back again or are they still or have they gone? I don't know. Well, it's, you know, the, the, they have been around, haven't they, for the last couple of years. Mm. Uh, and we've been hoping that these pressures would keep on easing. Uh, so Massey University uh, have this report from a supply chain risk analytics network, or SCRAN for short, love a good acronym. Uh, yeah. Uh, they say challenges in the supply chain will increase and become more complex next year uh, with international and domestic risks uh, and rising costs. Uh, now, Massey say uh, while supply chain challenges have improved, uh, they haven't actually recovered completely. And now we have a challenging global financial situation. Uh, while it won't cause major disruptions, uh, we'll still be faced with high costs and slow markets. And uh, people in the supply chains, they're expecting... Uh, job pressures to increase uh, and inventory levels are high at the moment. So that means inventory costs are high. And there's also concern about difficulty in sourcing uh, raw materials. And that's uh, prompting some importers to be extra cautious when right. ordering. Let's just bring in a whole bunch of hair and some glue. That'll work <laughs> for them. Thank you. There we are, Anandzaki. You can hear more from the business team this morning on Morning Report at 10.27. It works hard, your Kiwi dollar. Uh, the world's currently the world's 14th most traded currency. 
Here's what it's worth. 63.72 US cents, 94.73 Australian cents, 60.56 Euro cents, 52.17 British pence, 4.43 yuan and 87.03 Japanese yen. It's half past five. We go to Australia now where the Queensland Outback has delivered another rare fossil discovery with the country's first Elasmosaurus skeleton, I hope I've said that right. A uh, property owner uncovered the ancient marine reptile, that's a type of plesiosaur, near the remote western Queensland town of McKinley. Uh, And as the ABC's Stephanie Smale reports, they called in the experts to carefully reveal the precious find. Espen Knutsen has waited a long time to get the chance to dig up a whole Elasmosaur skeleton. We've been sort of been looking for, well, not just myself, but uh, people before me as well. I've also been trying to find such a find for many, many, many years because they're pretty hard to come by on a global, globally speaking as well, not just within Queensland. The Museum of Tropical Queensland senior paleontology curator headed to Western Queensland after a property owner spotted the first signs of the plesiosaur. One day uh, she sent me a photo and that already uncovered a lot of the skeleton and you could see easily see the head uh, in the ground followed by the neck and uh, towards the rest of the body so obviously that was a very very good sign. He says it's rare to find a fossil of the creature with the head still attached. Often what you'll find with any long-necked animal in the fossil record is that you'll find bits of the body with no head or you might be lucky and find a head uh, without much or any of the body attached to it. They're such bizarre animals they're a little hard to describe. Queensland Museum Research Assistant Christina Chiatakis helped to excavate the site. She explains elasmosaurs look like huge turtles with no shells and this one's neck is longer than she is tall. They've got flippers like a turtle but they've got really, really, really long necks like a giraffe but instead of sitting upright it sits down in front of it. And then they've got these tiny little tails. The team has carefully put the individual bones in bubble wrap, plaster and wet toilet paper and taken them to the Museum of Tropical Queensland in Townsville for further analysis. Christina Chiatakis says it's hard to tell why this plesiosaur died, but it would have been swimming around in what's now red dirt about 100 million years ago. It is odd to think of the the fact that we are finding marine reptiles and turtles and fish and that sort of thing in what is now essentially desert in outback Queensland, but back in the Cretaceous, it was an inland sea. This really is golden age of uh, dinosaur and marine reptile hunting in Queensland. Queensland Museum Network Chief Executive Jim Thompson says the fossil is another invaluable insight into the past. This joins the world up in some ways. I mean, the world looked very different 100 million years ago than it does now. And putting all these pieces together tells a really fantastic story of how the Earth has evolved. And Espen Knutsen is hoping there's more where that came from. There's bones coming out all over the place over there and throughout most of uh, central and western Queensland as well. So it's uh, certainly a place that we need to go out and, and see if there are things that we haven't found before. Anything's possible. Who knows what's out there. That's Queensland Museum paleontologist Dr Espen Knutson ending that report from the ABC, Stephanie uh, Smale. Katrina's come in there during this in my ear and told me that uh, this new Elasmosaurus might be the new favourite. She's put it right at the top of the dinosaur rankings already. Is that recency bias? Have a Google of it. It's got a big old long neck if you want to have a look. 
best dinosaurs too when I won if you would like to do so. Okay, it's at 26 to 6. Upcoming holiday plans could potentially be disrupted due to a dud batch of Avgas. Yeah, routine testing found that the shipment of 25 million litres of fuel was not fit for purpose and taken out of circulation yesterday. Z Energy, owner of the contaminated shipment, told airlines last night they would need to conserve fuel in coming weeks as a result. So I spoke with the general manager of one of our smaller carriers, Air Chathams, and I asked Dwayne Emini uh, what this means for the airline's flights over the holidays. To be honest, we haven't been told a hell of a lot. We've basically been said that they're looking at rationing to 75% of our forecast usage for each atoms, which is actually a figure worked out by our supplier, our main supplier, which is AirBP. So we actually have no idea of what that figure is. So from an airline point of view, it's it's very challenging for us to accurately say how much of an impact it's going to have, other than to think that we need to try and find 25% from somewhere else. If we don't find that other 25%, I'm not really sure what the, the process is, whether the fuel truck will hit a certain level and say, no, sorry, you're not getting any more today. I've really got no idea. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the obvious, it sounds like a dumb question, but how, how disruptive is this for, you know, I guess for your plans for the next you know, month or so? Yeah, I mean, again, we, we just don't really know. Uh, that's, I think that's a, the, the key point here. And I think for us as an airline uh, and for all airlines, it's just another thing to deal with off the back of so many things, you know, when it comes to obviously high prices of fuel over the, the last few months, especially, and uh, supply issues, getting uh, parts in from overseas, you know, resourcing with, with staff. It's, it's just been a hell of a time. So it's just one more thing that airlines have to deal with that we can certainly do without as we head into the busiest part of the year. Do you think it might end up with you having to cancel flights? I really hope not. But again, we really don't know because uh, we're not sure yet on what the, the, the operational process is. I mean, at what point do they say, in our case here, Chathams, you've, you've had too much fuel and you've got to stop flying. We, we just don't know what the process is at this, uh, at this point. Right. Um, so what if a bad batch of, of, of gas or a bad batch of oil... I don't know what that is, like what you know, because I I didn't really consider. It. I suppose it sits in the ground for millions of years before it's dealt with. What what have they told you about it that was bad? Yeah, so I had a had a quick call with our key account manager from from Airbnb and really just said it was off spec. Didn't go into too much detail as to what that actually is, and and said that we don't have the facilities here in New Zealand that would allow them to blend the off spec portion of that supply out. They do have the ability to do that in other places overseas, but unfortunately, we just don't have that here in New Zealand. Would we be able to if Marsden Point was still open? I'm not 100% sure on that. I'm not an expert on refineries, but yeah, so that, that would definitely be a question for the suppliers. If there was perhaps um, you know, a cavalry coming over the horizon and in the next couple of weeks a, a, you know, a bunch of fuel arrived, how big a relief would that be and would, would that help you at all? Oh, it would be huge. It would be even better if it was at a lower price. <laughs> so while we got you here, tell us, where's the best places to fly on Air Chathams? What are you flying? And um, do I get better than an in-flight Booger mix? <laughs> well, you get, you get a Tim Tim, uh, Nathan. Oh, so yeah, that's, okay, that's, that's a win. That's, that's, that's getting up there. I mean, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a Chatham Islander, so I've got to say the Chathams. It's the best place to go on the planet. And uh, unfortunately, they have cell phone service now, so so you can still be contacted. But <laughs> all of that aside, it's a, it's, a, it's a bloody great spot. That's the General Manager of Air Chathams, Dwayne Emini.
It is 22 to 6 already. I'm Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. So still to come, we'll expand on that issue with the Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson. And also, First Up's Leonard Powell, the croc man, uh, took a trip to Coromandel to find out why a proposed crossing between Pawanui and Tairua is such a big, and if you've been there you'll know this, a pretty massive deal. The professionals of RNZ are the morning report team. It's Marnie Dunlop here. Kia ora, how are you? Morena, I'm well. How are you? I'm pretty good. What have you, you been talking about today? What's coming up today, sorry? Well, we are obviously looking into uh, the court decision yesterday, uh, sorry, by the High Court around the baby and uh, the Starship Hospital doctors obviously preparing for life-saving heart surgery, uh, who is now under the guardianship of the of the High Court. So we'll be looking, uh, we'll be speaking to Ron Quinn, who is our health correspondent, as you well know, who's been doing an exceptional job at covering this very complex mm. and quite sad issue with, with a, a very sick baby at the centre of it and obviously looking more into New Zealand's fuel uh, capacity and so we've got ZNG, Maritime Union and just unpacking the issues there. It's looking like the potentially that, that threat of uh, our holidays being disrupted may not be um, what we expected but you know we never know that this is a bigger story around our fuel capacity so we'll yeah. be unpacking that a bit Nathan. Wonderful thank you very much Marnie Dunlop and Corinne Dan with you after six. You, you, boy, as you would have heard earlier, 25 people are in custody after a series of raids across Germany, which has been linked to a far-right plot to overthrow their government. Authorities say those arrested are part of an extremist group known as Reichsburger. Damien McGuinness has this from Berlin. This 71-year-old aristocrat, Prince Heinrich XIII, was allegedly the ringleader of a far-right plot to overthrow the German state and establish himself as monarch. This might sound far-fetched, but it sparked the largest anti-terror operation modern Germany has ever seen. In raids across the country, 3,000 officers have arrested dozens of people, including former soldiers accused of going into barracks to recruit army staff and an ex-member of parliament who, until she was arrested, was working as a judge in Berlin. The plan was to attack energy infrastructure, spark a civil war and so overthrow the government. These people are known as Reichsburger or citizens of the empire in English. They are conspiracy theorists who don't believe in the legitimacy of the modern German state They claim it's occupied by the US and want to set up a nation modelled on the German Empire before World War I. Outlandish ideas, but dangerous. It should concern us that these people are not stupid. They are educated people with experience in life. They have access to arms and to information and to important people. And this combination makes it particularly threatening and remarkable. This movement has been active since the 1980s, but during the pandemic gained momentum, boosted by anti-vaccine COVID deniers and conspiracy theorists inspired by America's QAnon even trying to storm the German parliament in 2020. Experts say this latest plot is unlikely to have worked. The movement is small and very fringe, but it's also potentially violent with access to military training and weapons. 
That's why Germany takes this so seriously. Yeah, the BBC's Damien McGuinness with that report. To a story about a bridge in the Coromandel now, not the one-way one uh, that you might expect. No, no, this is a walking and cycling bridge that will cross the Tairua River there between Tairua and Pawanui, and it looks set uh, to get the go-ahead. So the Hikawai District Trust is behind the Tairua River Trail, which would form a key link in the Coromandel's expanding trail network. Reporter Leonard Powell took a trip down to Tairua to see what the locals make of this project. Geographically speaking, you could hit a golf ball from Tairua across the harbour and get close to Pawanui, but by car, it'll take you the best part of half an hour. That is set to change. Residents from both communities may soon be able to walk and cycle across the Tairua River. The Hikawai District Trust have announced the proposed 120 metre suspension bridge that will link to a 15-kilometre riverside trail. Trust Chair Derek Adams says it's been a long time coming. We have already built six and a half kilometres of the trail on the southern side of the Tairua River and the project's been stalled for about three years while we kind of worked through some issues with various stakeholders and having consulted widely with those stakeholders we now are delighted to have a proposal that has broad acceptance. The proposed site is six and a half kilometres out of Tairua at a narrow point of the river near an old sawmill. Mr Adams lays out the plan. It's going to involve building a 120 metre suspension bridge across the Tairua River at a point where the trail currently ends and then proceeding on the northern bank of the river into Tairua, a section of it on the edge of the river and then a portion of it on the NZTA Road Reserve and then finally finishing with a boardwalk which proceeds into Tairua itself. On the main street of Tairua, I found lots of cyclists, but not many people in opposition of the new bridge. Very good. The more bike trails, the better. I've got a bicycle, which I ride virtually every day. So, yeah, no, I'm all for it. Well, I do a bit of e-biking. That would be quite good if there's a, a bridge that enabled me to get across to Pawanui from time to time. It sounds as if where it will be placed or located will not interfere with the whole look and the beauty of the environment. And there's a lot of cycling around the place because it is so flat. So I, I think it would be a good thing. Yeah, most definitely. Big advantage to have easy access between the two places. Catherine at the local hardware shop says it's a great thing for the area. I think it's brilliant because it enables the communities to walk across or come across without having to travel in cars and also quite often have floods. So if cars could drop their over there and walk across, people quite often get caught up over there, but for the children and for the community it's one of the best things ever. It'll hook up with the cycle lane and make the whole Coromandel open up a wee bit more. Her boss Michelle is one of those who at times has had to get creative with her commute. I myself yes, live in Pawanui, work in Tyrell, so I've been flooded in before. A couple of weeks ago my lovely partner came across in his dad's boat and picked me up and my workmate, her partner lives in Tyrell, works in Pawanui, so he had to get dropped off back to the wharf by his boss on jet ski. So there's lots of fun ways, but yeah, if there was a bike trail, by all means, yep, that would be probably the way to go. Some were on the fence, though still keen on the idea. Well, I think for the uh, cycleway, it's fantastic. But for uh, just walking traffic, getting across here, mm, I think it's a bit too far out of town, but... I don't know. It's a mixture. A lot of people think it's positive. It's a really positive thing for the community. There are a few that don't think it's a great idea, but they've got their own opinions on it. Um, I think it would be amazing to be able to travel to Pawanui without having to go in your car. Online, however, 
there was some frustration about the Tairua River Trail going ahead when the town's access is still limited by three one-way bridges. But Mr Adams says this project isn't related to the roads. Clearly the one-way bridges are an issue for the Coromandel and, and that's really an issue with NZTA, Waka Katahi. Not with ourselves, we're a um, voluntary community organisation. While we'll be hoping for some local and central government funding, if at all possible, this will largely be funded and constructed by volunteers. You know, we'll seek corporate and individual sponsorship to get it built. So I don't see that the two are in conflict. We'd like to see both happen. Ultimately, with the current ferry service that Mr Adams hopes will become more reliable, doing a loop along the new path and then finishing with a boat ride back across will become a popular activity. He sees a great chance for both communities to mix. Absolutely, I could see a triathlon. You could swim one way and, uh, and then run around or cycle around the, the trail. So look, I think that this will be a community asset. It will drive events. You know, I can see a lot of opportunity and a lot of excitement from the community. The Taiadua River Trail will need resource consent, which is expected early next year. Leonard Powell with that report. Time to hear from Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson now. I asked him about this bad batch of aviation fuel that's forcing airlines to ration their supplies and asked, do you think it's going to disrupt people's holiday plans? No, no, it won't be. And operating on 75% does allow, uh, certainly at a domestic level, planes to keep moving. If, if you want a point of comparison, people might remember in 2017 when the, the pipeline was ruptured by a digger. And at that point, there was a 30% allocation model. So we're some way away from that at 75%. One of the things that does happen for a lot of the domestic flights in New Zealand is that the planes do something called tanking, which means that they carry more fuel into Auckland than they need so that they don't have to fill up as much there because there's no problem with the supplies at other airports at the moment. So there's a lot of work being done um, across the airlines to make sure that planes can keep flying. And the word that we've certainly had from Air New Zealand is um, things should be able to operate normally. Obviously, there are other issues that the airlines are dealing with illness to do with COVID and, and staffing and so on, but in this count should be fine. We also do have another batch of fuel that's due to come in next week, I think it is, here the 12th of December, and that will be available for use a few days after that. So we've just got to tide ourselves over over the next week and a half, 10 days, and we should be right. So does Z Energy, do they have to compensate airlines here, or does Z and the airlines, are they covered by insurance for anything like this? I'm actually not sure of the answer to that. Obviously, there are contractual relationships between Z Energy and the airlines, and I'm sure those contracts will have within them what happens in a situation like this. It is just really unfortunate. This is a, a set of, you know, a contaminated batch, essentially, and obviously people will be investigating exactly how that happened. We do have stocks of fuel. It's not like we, we run week to week on this sort of thing, but obviously... You know, it's better to be safe than sorry. Do a little bit of rationing at the moment, and we should be fine by the time we get to Christmas. Does it make us miss the Marsden Point oil refinery in case things like this happen? Look, you know, I mean, this is a situation where a batch of fuel appeared to be fine, was tested, wasn't up to specification. There's the ability to do some blending of fuel. Um, we can still do that now. Ultimately, these are the kinds of things that happen from time to time. I, I actually asked the same question when I heard about it, and essentially this is a situation that just occurs. You have to deal with it. 
whether it was Marsden Point or whether it was an imported batch of fuel, it can happen. And we, you know, we think we've got a, a system in place that'll deal with it. One thing we have done is announced relatively recently that um, from 2024 onwards, we're going to have a much larger stock of fuel on the ground here in New Zealand to try to avoid these sorts of situations. We're building up to that point, but there are, you know, systems in place. Everybody is behaving, you know, responsibly and collegially, and we should get through without major disruption. Oh, good, good. And I, I guess another thing is how they dispose of that stuff, but that's maybe for another time. I guess, you know, there was a, a really uh, highly emotionally charged case, and we've seen it. And uh, yep, six o'clock Wednesday night, decision comes out. The High Court takes guardianship of a baby whose parents wouldn't let him receive that blood from someone who's had the COVID vaccine, so he can have that life saving heart surgery. Are you relieved with that? What I'm pleased is that there's a decision and it's a decision that has been taken in the best interests of, of this child. These are really difficult and complicated cases. And what the clinicians do here is they take their job really seriously to make sure that they're doing what they think is right for uh, a child. It's a big call to go to court in the way that they have. And I think we've got to back the doctors who make these kinds of decisions. And like I say, not easy for anybody involved. I'm pleased a decision has been made. And, you know, I just hope that this young young person gets all the care that they need. Yeah. I mean, are you concerned that with this, though, that the anti-vax crew might try and fire up? And I, I, I keep picturing in my head, that, um, remember, it must have been the 90s, perhaps, the footage in Florida of the young boy called Elon that was, you know, being snatched away from a cupboard there by police. Do you think they'll try and make it look, look like that? Look, you know, I really hope not. And I, as I say, I mean, you know, we, we've heard consistently through this case that the parents of this child want the child to have the operation that's needed here. You know, so there's there's no doubt that everyone wants that to happen. A decision's been made here. It's been made by a court on the basis of doctors saying this is what's in the best interest of the child. I, I just really hope everyone can accept that and move forward. And nobody underestimates the the emotion and the challenge and the difficulty here, but we have to do what's right for the child and it's the decision the court's made. The thing I found really puzzling was that, you know, the hearing for the matter was of great urgency because the baby needs the surgery, but it's a week before the court made its decision. Do you think that just the way the system works itself, is it is it fit for purpose in cases like this where it seems like such a pressing health urgency? Yeah, look, it's, these cases are incredibly rare. That's the first thing. So, you know, the system won't always be perfectly set up for them. But I have absolute confidence that had it been a situation where the surgery was required within, say, 24 or 48 hours, that would have been made clear by Health New Zealand to Whatever They would have had that. I'm sure that, you know, we know about court injunctions that can happen kind of overnight in certain cases. So I'm absolutely certain that those doctors, if they felt that it had to happen, Within a, a day, they would have said that to the judge. It was done within a week. The decision's been made. I really hope this child gets the operation they need as soon as they possibly can. Yeah, let's hope the hope the child pulls through well. Now, just interesting. I know the prime minister said, you know, we're heading into a uh, summer where we won't have COVID hanging over us. Probably more the restrictions than the thing itself. Mm, it certainly yeah. isn't going away from the planet. But I mean, we've had some some of the the colleagues who've had a hard time finding rat tests and masks just at the moment. Do you know, is, is there a supply problem around or do we need to look harder? 
<laughs> there absolutely isn't a supply problem. Uh, in fact, there's um, there's no shortage of rats and mice. I don't want to cast aspersions on your colleagues, um, but actually, there are you know there, there I believe there are more than a million rats in storage okay. and plenty of masks as well. I can give a tip for everybody, Nathan, and that's if you Googled rat request in NZ you'll find yourself directed to the COVID-19 website and you can actually request rats and get them delivered. One of the issues that can happen at this time of the year, not just for rats, but actually anything, is that it gets a bit busy. Couriers can take a bit longer to deliver to a particular uh, dispensary uh, or, or perhaps somebody hasn't you know, made their orders in time. You know, that kind of thing can occur. But I can 100% assure you and listeners and, and your friends who have been struggling to find them that there's no shortage of rats or indeed masks fantastic all right that's that's good we'll get them onto that hey finally look that's our last chat of the year for yourself and i i'm off next week um but although uh, you will be speaking with anna thomas uh, next week one of my first up colleagues but look from the whole team thank you very much uh, for doing this also to uh, patrick and chris as well uh, your press team for making you available to us I hope you have a fantastic holidays. Uh, is there anywhere that you will be blessing in particular? <laughs> yeah, look, um, I'm really looking forward to, to a bit of a break. Um, I'll be doing some family things up on the East Coast and down in, down in the south of New Zealand as well, which will be really nice. And, yeah, like I think a lot of people looking to a bit of a breather. 2022 has been a, a big year for oh. New Zealand. It's kind of hard to remember if you'd put yourself back to this time of year last year or the beginning of the year. We hadn't had Omicron. We hadn't had all of that outbreak. We hadn't had a huge number of things that have happened in New Zealand. And so I just want to say thanks to the First Up team and Nathan, you and, and everybody involved. It's always a pleasure to do these interviews. And, and also to your listeners, there's a pretty dedicated bunch out there and um, they get in touch often about what they hear on the show. And I just want to say thanks to, to people for doing that and wish everybody who's listening a, a safe and happy holiday break. That is Grant Robertson. Finally, your correspondence for this morning. Thank you. I asked, I asked earlier on about the email that went round at work about a GPS on a water bottle and it did seem slightly over the top to me. Paul says how do you lose your water bottle if it's got GPS on it? Don't know. Here's one from Anon. GPS bottles, obviously a waste of money if it can't be found. Peter Bailey asks, hey Nathan, how many bad batches of diesel and petrol have been imported since they closed Marsden Point? Must be the one I suppose. I'm, I'm not sure Peter, I don't know that was a guess there. And Pip says on the supply chain concern we currently have 17 ships anchored in the Bay of Plenty waiting to be unloaded and they do look beautiful at night. Thank you all very much for your attendance this morning. This song uh, was recorded on this day in 1967 and uh, of course it was Otis Redding's song that went to number one sitting on the dock of the bay. Morning reporters next with Marnie and Corin from all of us here at First Up. We're back in your ears. Ah, Paul, Paul. Have a good day.